This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today a two-part program. Later, our friend, independent producer Judy Goldberg, will share a 2019 conversation she had with the grandson of Nelson Mandela, and a couple of others too, about the ongoing impact of the Mandela legacy on both South Africa and the world at large. But first, I caught on Netflix part of a documentary series called Remastered that may still be available on the service. You should check because each episode in the series delves into moments in history when music figures intersected with the news in one way or another. And the episode I saw was called Tricky Dick and the Man in Black. Now, if you grew up in the 1960s like I did, you have no trouble knowing the chief figures in that story, Richard Nixon and Johnny Cash. The film tells the tale of a 1970 intersection of the two men that struck me as a story of conflicted times in the nation and how each of the two men grappled with those times and came face to face with their own internal conflicts from the meeting. Sarah Dosa is on the line with me from San Francisco. She's one of the directors of the film. Sarah, thanks for being with us today on Peace Talks Radio. Oh, it's my pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for having me on. For context, uh, Tricky Dick and the Man in Black really focuses on a period of time between like 1968 and 1970 uh, when the United States is being torn apart by issues of race and war and peace and what does it mean to be an American who's a real American patriot. And so that's the timeline that this uh, particular story covers. And you've got Johnny Cash uh, as a man in conflict at a defining moment in his career and in his personal life and in his spiritual life, it seems, as well. Our program being about peacemaking and conflict resolution on all levels, uh, what I found so intriguing about it is that this sounds like Johnny Cash at a moment of um, decision. Um, he's forced into it to some degree, but he also comes to it organically mm-hmm. in a, a lot of other uh, ways. And again, we should say that the main drama of the documentary is that Richard Nixon invites Johnny Cash to the White House to perform a concert. It's sort of introduced at the beginning of the film, and then we watch as that timeline moves toward it throughout the rest of the film. So. Let's talk a little bit about Johnny Cash in conflict, the way that you learned about it for this film and portrayed it. Could you talk a little bit more about maybe his upbringing uh, that uh, made Cash sort of naturally a conservative traditionalist first? Sure. Yeah. So Johnny Cash was raised in Dias, Arkansas in the Depression era. He was raised by a very poor family. um, But at the same time, uh, his family talks about how they never really saw themselves as poor. They worked hard for their living. They were very much kind of that that classic bootstrapping Americans who worked hard and, and were grateful for what they had. Um, but at the same time, they, they were no stranger to struggle. Johnny's brother uh, in the film and just in our own conversations and research would talk about how um, patriotic uh, their family was and particularly their father and that there was tremendous respect for the institution of government. They were also a deeply Christian family. Um, Johnny's older brother, Jack, who, who tragically died in 1944, for example, he was destined to be a preacher, um, and that was some God, and, and faith was central to not only Jack's life, but Johnny's life. And when Jack tragically died, you know, Johnny very much wanted to follow in the footsteps of his brother and, and very much committed himself to God. 
So uh, that was those were kind of some of the cultural elements that uh, his family um, embraced and, and grew up with, and that kind of served as initial guides. Uh, as he was coming of age. Um, he also was in the military, um, and that, of course, also formed the backdrop of his kind of political worldview and his relationship to the institution of government as well. All before he was taken seriously as a musician. So uh, mm-hmm. where he was going to land it was totally up in the air for many years. And I know a lot of folks saw the Joaquin Phoenix uh, performance of mm-hmm. Johnny Cash mm-hmm. in the films and learned a little bit about uh, his... Um, desire to please his father that was you know hard to do all the way to the end of his father's life and mm-hmm. uh, some responsibility that he felt for his uh, brother's death and lots of other emotional turmoil. Absolutely. He, he felt tremendous responsibility and uh, believed that Jack's death was his own fault. Um, and from accounts from his family members, they, uh, you know, they, they corroborated that view that um, you know, Johnny really felt like he was a criminal, so to speak, uh, that that um, his brother could have been alive if Johnny would have done something. Um, and Johnny spent countless hours in his life trying to win over his father's approval. Mark Stilper in, in our film, uh, who's one of uh, Johnny Cash's great personal friends and also is considered the Cash family historian, uh, he talks about, uh, you know, to, to the day he died, Ray Cash, Johnny Cash's father, um, did not give him the kind of approval that his son had always sought. That does, you know, real damage, of course, over the course of one's life. Um, however, the other thing it did do is it gave Johnny a deep sense of empathy for those who struggled. And I think that was kind of the early seeds of his political awakening, even though he would never use the word political. But um, it was how he um, stepped into um, his conscience um, and allowed him to kind of begin to question what was happening in the country that he loved so, so dearly. Sarah Dosa is one of the directors of Tricky Dick and the Man in Black, a story about Johnny Cash and Richard Nixon. So let's go back to the Richard Nixon side of the tale, because uh, you cover this a bit in the documentary. How were Nixon and Cash somewhat similar in their upbringings in a way that uh, Richard Nixon really thought he kind of understood Johnny Cash? He did. N- Nixon thought he could understand Johnny Cash and did understand Johnny Cash because the two men had somewhat similar upbringings. Nixon grew up on a struggling lemon farm. He had a father who uh, was extremely hard on him. Um, he lost two brothers to, I-, I believe it was tuberculosis. And these were all experiences that resonated with Johnny Cash's experience. Um, you know, Johnny growing up uh, at a Uh, on a farm in Arkansas, also losing his brother, also having an extremely difficult father. Both men were patriots. Nixon thought that Cash described to conservative values. Um, So Nixon really did think that in Johnny Cash, he had a kindred spirit, seeing each other reflected in each other. Right. And and both had been uh, struggling a bit in their professional careers. I mean, Nixon had some famous failures yes. uh, in his, his political uh, climb up the ladder. Uh, you know, Cash uh, had his ups and downs uh, and was certainly struggling still. Uh, but at the time that they kind of came together, they had both sort of reached the top, hadn't they? Uh, Nixon had won the election in 68. Uh, Cash was a, a huge star and had just premiered his national TV show. So they were uh, above the fold uh, again together, weren't they? Yeah, uh, that, that is a great way to put that in context. I think these both men were, were no strangers to loss. So you do have these great kind of moments looking at both of them heading toward this meeting in April of 1970 when Johnny Cash actually comes into the White House. And you talk a little bit about the conservative 
plan for the South uh, that was already sort of in swing by the time that Richard Nixon uh, was uh, winning the presidency in 1968. I guess the documentary does make the point that beyond Nixon's apparent connection to Johnny Cash or even enthusiasm for music, which he was not necessarily an enthusiast for country music, but he was pretending pretty well, mm-hmm. uh, that there was a subtext to uh, him cozying up to Cash and the country music audience, it seems. He, he absolutely was. Um, inviting Johnny Cash to the White House in April of 1970 was definitely in line with the Southern strategy that was engineered uh, by Nixon's team. Um, you know, Nixon had won the 1968 election by a very slim margin. And in order to consolidate their base um, for a re-election in 1972, uh, they very much thought that they needed to to really get the South on board um, and particularly get the Wallace Democrats um, uh, to, to firmly align themselves with Nixon um, and the Republican Party. So um, they launched kind of the, the Southern strategy, this, this cultural strategy of appealing to the South and uh, some perhaps stereotypical um, ideas of what the South meant and some cultural trends that at that time they believed Southerners would relate to. You know, this is largely God and guns and country. Um, and they thought that country music would be um, a key avenue uh, to go down in order to reach out to uh, perhaps some undecided voters. Um, and, you know, Johnny Cash being this huge star at the time that represented uh, a certain American ideal, um, one of the most popular country singers at the time for the Nixon administration, they thought, OK, this, this is a win. Uh, this, this could be um, a great way to align ourselves with a popular icon, uh, you know, quote unquote, son of the South. Um, and also, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan, who was one of Nixon's key advisors, loved Johnny Cash. And so for him personally, uh, this, this was, uh, he thought, he thought it would be a win. Nixon uh, made a visit to the Grand Old Opry that you show here. The peace of the world will depend not just on America's military might, which is the greatest in the world, but it's going to depend on our character, our love of our country, our willingness to not only wear the flag, but stand up for the flag, and country music does that. Throughout Nixon's entire presidency, well, even into his second term, he attempted to cultivate the support of the South. time, Johnny Cash, as we mentioned, premieres his TV show at the, they recorded the Ryman Theater. Uh, it was a big success in the summer of 1969. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. It was a variety entertainment show, and it was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. Certainly unlike anything that anybody had ever seen in country music. He healed the leper and the lame. He sings gospel songs. Make welcome my brother, Tommy Kay. It was a family affair all around. You're looking for someone who's never weak, but always strong. He puts on a special segment on every show called Ride This Train. 
Ride this train with me to San Antonio, Texas, Springfield, Missouri, Boise, Idaho. It's a quintessentially American experience. And he puts people on TV that nobody's ever seen before. But it's not just country people. Please make welcome Miss Joni Mitchell. Bob Dylan. Love is all it makes the world round. He puts on Pete Seeger. <laughs> These were all leaders of the anti-war movement. There's a really affecting moment uh, when he's in the uh, dressing room with Pete Seeger where he's just talking and they're filming him. The people that I'm contracted with said that how dare you supposedly such a good American have a communist like Pete Seeger on your TV show. The Pete Seeger I know and the Pete Seeger that June and I have come to love is i say one of the best Americans and patriots I've ever known. Seeger was blacklisted as other musicians were called communists during that time for their essentially advocating for basic freedoms. It felt like this is the moment in the documentary where you're trying to paint this picture of the, um, what would you call it, uh, the broader education of Johnny Cash into the complexities of the American experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful way to, to describe it. And, and that was, from a storytelling perspective, this really was the moment that we're trying to illustrate that in the documentary. Um, kind of, as I mentioned before, Johnny always possessed um, a deep sense of empathy for the quote-unquote downtrodden. And, and he famously, I'll interrupt to say, he famously in early 1968 uh, did his Folsom Prison concerts and it became a big smash record hit too. Exactly. Um, he had these experiences where he bore witness to the struggles of Americans, whether it was at Folsom Prison, um, you know, he visited Wounded Knee and saw what life was like on the reservation there um, at, you know, and at that time the, the American Indian movement was burgeoning. I didn't realize that he had done a whole album of songs written about the American Indian experience. Yeah, he did. Um, it's actually it's interesting you say that because most people are totally surprised to know that he did that. It, it was one of his lesser known albums and, and certainly not as popular. Uh, but it's a very affecting album that really does give voice um, to kind of the experience of, of uh, Native Americans at that time. And again, Cash always shied away from the use of the word politics or political. But uh, he he believed in patriot patriots. Um, he believed in the country. Um, however, when the government uh, did not support the American people, um, he would question it. And that's really what you saw him starting to do at this time. All right, back to Richard Nixon for a moment. In his 1968 campaign and his early presidency, he promises to bring, quote, an honorable end to the war in Vietnam. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I have initiated a plan which will end this war in a way that will bring us closer to that great goal, the goal of a just and lasting peace. Mm -hmm. Which was the perfectly crafted campaign line because <laughs> it, could sound, it could sound like a call mm -hmm. for peace, but to militarists it could sound like a call to just go win the war. And it, in the way your documentary plays it out, Johnny Cash kind of falls for it a little bit because 
Cash did tip his hand by making an explicit call of support for the president on his show. My family here and I stand behind the president of the United States in his quest for a just and lasting peace. He's surrounded by a crew and by producers who are from California, who are from New York, who do not believe what they are hearing. What did you just do? You have just alienated half of your audience. This is outrageous. Johnny Cash said, you put that in or I do not come back to work. They put it in. Johnny's message that goes out across the airwaves gets to the White House. And the president writes a letter. Dear Mr. Cash, Pat and I were so appreciative of what you said about us. We want to find an honorable end to the war. Thank you for your support, Richard Nixon. And that seems to be the moment on the timeline where Nixon really embraces Cash's support and uh, the Nixon White House pursues making a Cash appearance at the White House set for April 17, 1970, wanting him to, to sing. Nixon asks him to sing a couple of songs specifically that he didn't even write. Could you tell me more about that? Uh, so Nixon's team asked Johnny Cash to sing Okie from Muskogee and Welfare Cadillac, which were two songs that that embodied uh, kind of right-wing cultural... Neither one of which Johnny Cash wrote. Exactly. Neither of them were Johnny Cash's songs. And they requested uh, some, you know, jo- that Johnny plays hits as well. But those were specific requests uh, and were, poli- of course, politically motivated that would clearly align Johnny in uh, the camp of the right wing um, were he to sing those songs. Um, but <laughs> the media had a field day with it. Uh, like, how, how dare Nixon make fun of his own citizens, his own countrymen? So it, it kind of backfired in a way and really kind of uh, drummed up controversy before the actual concert. The Nixon White House weren't really uh, connecting the dots about Johnny Cash's emerging uh, sensitivity and uh, social consciousness, it seems, anyway. Yeah, they, they absolutely were not. They were not aware of his visit to Wounded Knee. Um, they, of course, knew about the Folsom prison and his experience there. But it seems like they were just kind of looking at the surface and how Johnny represented um, the South in their minds, how he represented a, what a quote unquote good American was to be at that time. Um, they made a lot of assumptions that for them seemed politically strategic. So April 17, 1970 rolls along, and in your film, it's obviously the climax, and everybody's sort of anxious about what's going to happen uh, at that concert. Uh, Johnny Cash and his family are apparently all in in terms of being involved and excited about it. Um, the concert itself, what can you tell us about the set list or how it went um, for the most part uh, on that night? Sure. So uh, the set list actually is available online. Uh, I, sh- I should have brought it with me, but but there is a record of what the actual set list was. But leading up to the event, um, truly nobody seemed to know exactly what they were going to play. He was known for changing his mind last minute um, to respond to kind of the, the needs of um, or his perception of the needs of the environment that he, he was in. So the climax of the film, and, and I don't think it's, uh, it spoils it to you know, reveal what is known to history about uh, Johnny Cash, including 
dramatically in his set list, this song that apparently he had just written recently at that time. And to be honest with you, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan, and I'm embarrassed to say I did not know this song. Get asked a lot of questions about war and drugs and youth, this and that. Well, we took our show to Long Bend Air Force Base near Saigon, Vietnam. We did shows for the men over there, as many as we could for the time that we had. Somebody said, that makes you a hawk. You went to Vietnam. No, but after you watch the wounded come in in the helicopters, if you're a dove, you might come away a, a dove with claws. All of a sudden, John got very quiet. We were in trouble. We're waiting with these solemn looks on our faces. What's going on? Of course, um, in order to say something to somebody that might be meaningful, you got to kind of get them on your side. So I had these words, a poem that I wrote to the youth of America. And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? little boy of three sitting on the floor looks up and says, Daddy, what is war? Son, that's when people fight and die. Little boy of three says, Daddy, why? Young man of 17 in Sunday school being taught the golden rule. And by the time another year's gone around, maybe his turn to lay his life down. Can you blame the voice of youth for asking what is truth? I saw the squirming in Nixon's chair when Johnny was singing What is Truth. Nixon was smart enough and attentive enough to be uncomfortable. Young man sitting on a witness stand, man with a book says, raise your hand. Repeat after me, I solemnly swear. Judge looked down at his long hair. And although the young man solemnly swore, nobody seemed to hear anymore. And it didn't really matter if the truth was there. It was the cut of his clothes and the length of his hair. And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? Young girl dancing to the latest beat, found new ways to move her feet. Young man speaking in the city square, trying to tell somebody that he cares. Yeah, the ones that you're calling wild, Gonna be the leaders in a little while. This old world's waking to a newborn day, and I solemnly swear that it'll be their way. We better help that voice of youth find what is truth. And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? I was in tears, you know, I mean, it's, and, and, and even though, you know, we're sort of revealing the end of the film here, I, I, I wouldn't discourage anybody from watching it because it's a beautifully done documentary. Sarah Dosa, uh, what do we know about the reaction to Johnny Cash performing What is True uh, there in the White House? 
So uh, there were no cameras actually on Nixon at the time. So uh, all we have are, are the testimonies of the people in the room. And in the research that we did, um, Cash's family uh, certainly seemed to say that they saw, I, I think my favorite interview was actually with Joanne Cash, Johnny's sister. Uh, she said she saw Nixon squirm in his chair. Um, I think that everyone would agree that Nixon was made nervous by the political um, tones that this song has. But there's a power in the, in the poetry and in the subtleties um, and in Cash's appeal uh, to this, to truth, to this higher notion um, of goodness and right that um, I think sent shockwaves through through the White House and certainly made Nixon, you know, in the words of his sister, made Nixon squirm. Well, it's certainly a, a perfect example of like what Bob Dylan did very well and many other folk singers is that you don't necessarily call out the issue in a specific way, but you put it in the form of a question and then you try to legitimize the asking of the question. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a perfect example of a song that does that. And at the time, uh, the Nixon White House and the conservative movement was basically trying to delegitimize uh, the, quote, long hair hippie freaks uh, from even asking the questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I find that that's what's so powerful about it is that it's a question song that, you know, allows for... Uh, the, quote, opposition, uh, the resistance to be humanized enough to make the question valid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great way of putting it. Do those that knew Johnny Best that you talk with consider this to be a bit of a turning point for Cash? Yes, um, they did. Uh, th those closest to Cash did consider this somewhat of a turning point. Chris Christopherson, who was one of his close friends and, and musical collaborators at the time, famously said that Johnny Cash is um, a walking contradiction, partly truth, partly fiction. So there certainly were moments in his life where he would walk certain things back and say, oh, no, no, you know, what is truth? Uh, you know, I, I was just playing a song um, where he would, he would try to cover up some of the political leanings. But then again, he, he would do things that were very much aligned with, um, uh, with the anti-war movement. So... It was a turning point uh, for him. It goes without saying that the song was not especially moving to uh, Nixon to have him uh, change his path. Uh, about a week later, the Cambodian incursion was announced. As you all explained, the war was expanded. Kent State University murders by state troopers followed another week after that. Um, while Johnny was starting to speak out a little bit more for the youth culture on his TV show, as you suggested, uh, all representing the, the split of the time so well. Saradosa, is there a lesson that you think people who are interested in personal conflict resolution, uh, you know, might be able to draw from uh, this particular story in history? Mm, that, that's a great question. Um, I certainly, I think that there's a lot of lessons about the power of culture and the power of music. Um, within social movements, perhaps how to how to work with that power for positive social change or for conflict resolution. Um, I think that Johnny Cash really saw himself as a man of peace. Um, he really tried to bring sides together. The divisions in the country broke his heart. And I do think that um, that kind of message of, of reconciliation and getting people to talk, I, I think perhaps that is something that, that those working in conflict resolution could glean. When Johnny Cash says, 
about that performance, it seemed like he was interviewed by Dan Rather right afterwards. He said, well, I think I kept the performance honest. And if anything, it sort of seems like, you know, along with the question posed by the song itself, what is true, is that a pursuit of truth in an honest way is an honorable way to go. He, he absolutely stood for honesty and truth, and he saw Nixon standing for the opposite. Look for Tricky Dick and the Man in Black and the remastered series online. I'd check Netflix first, see if it's still there. We'll have a link to the trailer on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's where you go to hear this segment again and even the complete interview with one of the film's directors, Sarah Dosa. More links and info all at peacetalksradio.com. Now we're going to take a single break in our program today between our two parts. And when we come back, we'll hear Nadaba Mandela and others in conversation with independent producer Judy Goldberg discussing the ongoing impact of Nadaba's grandfather, Nelson Mandela, on South Africa and on the world. That segment starts in 60 seconds right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, turning the program over now to a wonderful piece prepared for us by independent producer Judy Goldberg and featuring, among others, the grandson of the late Nelson Mandela, Nadaba Mandela. Long live the spirit of Nelson Mandela, long live. Viva! How does the legacy of Nelson Mandela speak to us today? From the Migration and Belonging Conference at United World College, USA, participants and international guests identified the borders that divide us and the challenges impacting our sense of home. I'm Judy Goldberg, independent producer in conversation with keynote speakers Ndaba Mandela and Andrew Nalani, who found solidarity through their discussions about African identity, power, and intentions to transform the future of Africa. Also joining us will be Teddy Waria, entrepreneur and collaborator with Ndaba Mandela in their efforts to inspire and advance the ethos of Nelson Mandela. First, an introduction to Ndaba Mandela, the grandson of Nelson Mandela, internationally revered anti-apartheid activist who became the first black president of South Africa. Ndaba co-founded Africa Rising, a nonprofit anchored in his grandfather's visions to perpetuate youth leadership 
and Africa's independence. Growing up, I've gone through so many different, I don't know what you call it, like privilege, poor, hustling, part of the masses, exclusive. Um, I've gone through all of that, changing schools every year. Muslim school, Catholic school, Christian school. You can only imagine how that would uh, affect one. And then, yeah, I grew up with my grandfather from the time I was 11 years old, and he was the one who really now started to entrench this notion of what it is to be a Mandela. And the first thing he said to me was, Daba, you're my grandson. Therefore, people will look at you as a leader. Therefore, you have to get the best marks in class. And I was like, oh, wow, wow, the pressure, wow. No, I don't want this pressure. I don't want to be a Mandela. I just want to be a normal kid. Actually, Daba, this is nothing that you can escape. This is your heritage. This is your birthright. This is your lineage. This is who you are. This is your destiny, my friend. As I have grown and where I am today, I realize as a global citizen, you are first an African. Then you are a Hossa. Then you are a South African. And it is the African ethos, the value, and the principles to say we are African first and foremost. If you look at slavery, if you look at how the world has evolved, we are African way before anything else. Andrew Nilani, a Ugandan native, graduated from United World College USA in 2012. He went on to study at Dartmouth, Harvard Graduate School of Education, and now is at New York University as a Ph.D. student in the Psychology and Social Intervention Program. Andrew founded African Youth Leadership Experience in Uganda and serves as a facilitator internationally. What does it mean to wake up one day and realize that what I know as my history was never my narrative? What does it mean to write myself into a history out of which I've been erased? Your comment evokes for me, you know, that sense of solidarity around being African and the sense of being a global citizen. It also evokes for me a question of power. Coming into this world recognizing and owning our identity as a global citizen is also recognizing power and imbalance of power and a quest towards finding authentic power. When I think of the fact that I was never black until I came to the United States, I was picking up my suitcase, you know, my overpacked and my suitcase zippers had broken. I was picking it up at the airport and I felt ashamed that I was going to pick up this suitcase. And I looked around and I saw like everyone had these nice sleek suitcases. And I told myself, you know what, Andrew, just go pick up your suitcase. Never mind. They will understand you're black. The way I had constructed myself, no one, without anyone telling me anything about race, the way I'd constructed myself in the eyes of whiteness was one that disempowered me. When we ask that question of what it means to be a global citizen and what it means to share an African solidarity, I can't help but also think about the power dynamics that are at play and how we choose to identify and how we choose to constitute ourselves. It's about power. And I ask myself, what might a different kind of power look like? To further explore this question around power, Ndaba takes us into the mindset of his grandfather, well before the African National Congress claimed governance of South Africa. My grandfather, as he sat all those years in jail, he obviously saw from Ghana, mm. being the first 
black independent African country, 1950, the next one, the next one, the next one, Uganda, Zimbabwe, etc., is that most of them would actually kick out the whites, the oppressors, the colonial masters. But then what would happen to those countries? They would be marred by political, economic instability. They wouldn't be able to govern themselves or each other. Was that something like, oh, if you kick out the colonial master, then we shall punish you to show you that you are unable to govern yourself. And my grandfather saw this, obviously, when he was in jail. And I think what he decided was, you know what? We cannot afford to kick out the colonial masters. We have to work with the colonial masters. Because if we try to kick them out and we try to avenge them, this is what's going to happen to our people, clearly, because it's happening throughout Africa. So let us choose a different way. Let us be smarter. Let's find a way to actually work with these enemies. And I think that's a decision he made. To say, in order to defeat my enemy, I must work with my enemy, because then he becomes my partner. And maybe even my friend. Because I have been fighting this man as a liberation movement, against the colonial masters. Now I have defeated him. But I do not know how to run a government. Where am I going to learn how to run a government? It's him. I have to learn it from the enemy. So rather let us sacrifice, let us compromise for the benefit of the next generation. We cannot come and say, listen, leave our land, we want 100% of our gold mines. But I don't even know how to make a gold bar. So how do I kick a man out when I I haven't got the skills to actually run a profitable gold mine. I have to learn from him first. Then I can be able to be in a position of power once I have the skill and the knowledge to be able to turn this iron ore into gold bar. It's not an easy thing to arrive at. Andrew Nalani. It's not an easy way of of being. It's not an easy choice to make, um, especially when you've committed yourself years and years to trying to change the narrative, to trying to change the story, to finding more power. Um, and there's a d- new definition of power in there. There's, there's a sense of it's not about just winning. It's about what winning can do. Then it also seems to imply that there could be some mutuality, mm. that there could be something. I mean, I don't know if the end game is, as you said, to be able to know how to make that gold bar and then we are done with the white colonial master I mean, is that the is that the end game, or is it to see that there, that that friendships can form even? I mean, that's the whole reconciliation, and and can that happen? Is that happening? I believe the friendships can form. However, when you are able to finally have that skill to be able to run your government, to be able to turn that iron ore into a gold bar, you are trying to arrive at the position of independence. That is the aim of African society. We want to be independent from this westernized rule. Till today, till today we are striving to be independent as Africans, of course. Not to expel the white people, not to make them an NDP. As Europe is being governed by Europeans, Africa should be governed by Africans. So putting on your grandfather's hat, 
how, how would he be perceiving things now? What do, you, what do you think that the strategy or the next best move forward, because he's always well, about going forward. his strategy is still the best strategy, is that with each generation, you have to do a little bit to hand over to the next generation. That is the only strategy. There is no other strategy, as far as I'm concerned, but I'm open. I think of the question that you just asked of, you know, how do we move from here? Where do we go from here? And I think of I think of what's happening on ground. We are the youngest continent. I come from Uganda currently. The 80% of the country is under the age of 35, which means that we, we are looking at youth who are not just going through traditional education, but we are looking at the country, the very future of the country depending on youth. And for me, that is both terrifying and also um, a big opportunity. Beginning with that question of what might a different power look like, but also how might the ways that we engage young people, how might education support us to believe and trust in our own ways of knowing? Because that is where it begins, the very fact that, um, you know, these systems of governance, the systems of economics, the, the systems that we have currently, those systems have been developed from a particular standpoint of Western thought, Western philosophy, Western values that has undermined indigenous ways of knowing. And so I ask myself, if we are asking what might a different kind of power look like, what might a different way of knowing look like, how can we begin with the ways of knowing, I think of, for example, Ubuntu. How can we begin from those things that have still lived on in spite of the structure violence? Ubuntu comes from a Zulu proverb that translates to, I am a person through other people. My humanity is tied to yours. Andrew added, Ubuntu includes a sense of mutuality, that only in wholesome relationships with others do I find my true selfhood? But Ubuntu is under attack, has been under attack. Indaba Mandela. And we can see it slowly dissipating into history. Our forefathers fought a battle, a physical battle, because they had to break physical chains. They could point out the enemy and say, the enemy is the judge, is the police. And they have now defeated that enemy. But now there's a new enemy. The enemy is no longer a physical enemy. The enemy is a mental enemy now. The chains are in the brain. We are our worst enemy now. So our fight is actually a lot harder to fight mm -hmm. than the fight of my grandfather. Because we're fighting a fight of what? To say, oh, you want to develop? You want to become successful? What is success? It makes me ask the question... If it's about elevating the highest quality of humanity, if it is about celebrating, evoking, invoking, um, and bringing into this world the sense of a human being, by fact of being a human being, has a right to be on this planet and a right to thrive, if I keep quiet, I'm not in line with that principle. I am not honoring my own humanity. Yes. And I think... And I think standing, beginning with that clarity and then doing what I need to do to voice. 100%. To make my voice heard, uniting, organizing, finding others, mm -hmm. speaking out. Mm -hmm. Not to bash or make somebody else look evil, 
But speaking out to honor what is truly human, speaking out and acting, I think any action that is life-affirming is what we need to be doing. So we need to take a step back and look at humanity in general. We have diseases, whether it's prejudice, sexuality, or racism. There are all these different things that divide our humanity, right? We need to take a step back and ask ourselves, where is this planet going to be? What kind of planet do I want my grandchildren to inherit? And once you answer that question, then you will understand how we as human beings should evolve. We, I don't want my kids to be still fighting the HIV AIDS epidemic. I don't want my kids to still be fighting prejudice and racism. I want them to be fighting new challenges that we have not yet foreseen. And the only way we can do that is by like-minded people coming together and recognizing our common bound that brings us together as humanity for the sustainability of this planet. Otherwise, this planet will cease to exist in a few generations from now. There is a hope only if we act now. I think it's going to be a catastrophe if we do not. With migration, security, climate change, the, the issues that the younger generation has to deal with is enormous. And for me, I even begin to think of what might it look like to have a government that is shared between older folks and younger folks. We have to begin asking the disruptive questions. We need to work harder at inspiring and encouraging young people to push against the grain. You know, I'll start with myself. If I am not at a talk or at an interview, am I doing that on my daily basis? Am I doing it with my whole existence? No, I'm not. I should be doing it in my whole existence if I believe in it wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. So why am I not dedicating my whole existence to making sure that every young person that I meet on a daily basis is getting that encouragement mm -hmm. and that inspiration to understand that they are the masters of their destiny. And there is nothing that inspires courage more than narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we can, we can put tools in the hands of young people, young people on the continent, to see themselves as active creators of their own narratives and the more of those narratives we have rather than just a single narrative, how do we put tools in the hands of young people that support them to create transformative narratives? In a separate conversation, Teddy Waria, collaborator with Ndaba Mandela, adds specifics to how the African narrative is changing. Financial independence, skill development, and accountable leadership are taking shape all over the continent of Africa. We begin with Teddy Waria's own family origins. Originally came from the banks of River Nile in Egypt, then we followed as migrants, we followed a path to Bar el Ghazal in the Sudan. 
then we followed still the River Nile into Uganda at Jinja, then went all the way to the basin of Lake Victoria in Kenya, where the last Luo immigrants to Kenya. Uh, you may know some famous Luo people in America, like the 44th president of the United States, Barack Obama. Democracy works for nations that are fairly educated, uh, have good resources, evenly spread among the population, good healthcare systems, and great institutions, and not depending on individuals to run these countries. So how I'd like to see this uh, tackled in, in, in my life in, in deconstructing some of these systems, first and foremost, because I'm an entrepreneur and, and telecommunications and businessman in Kenya and Africa, I would simply like to ask American or Western companies or Arabic companies that originate from the Arab states to please pay their taxes. They may want to give us their philanthropic dollars, that's okay, but you can't on one side cheat us by stealing from us by not remitting the right taxes, or with the other hand you're giving us small amounts of money in terms of compassionate philanthropic activity. We don't need that. So we live in a data-driven world, pay your taxes, that will provide services for my people, that will, will, will make us not beg for, for your aid or help because we'll have adequate resources. According to Teddy Waria, the total philanthropic aid sent to Africa is $19 billion per year. However, the total revenues Western and Arabic countries extract out of Africa are three times as much. I believed in Obama rising, I believed in Africa rising, I believed in uh, Tabumbeki's African Renaissance, and there's a gentleman from University of Texas, an MBA professor, he had also written a fantastic book called Africa Rising. And I'd read the book and I'd believed that the whole thing about consumer, uh, Africa was becoming a big consumer market and the middle class was rising. So I wanted to be part of that, and not, not just be uh, a bystander, I wanted to be a contributor and a representative of the African Renaissance. And I, I live to see that day, I have. Africa Rising is just a state of mind of young Africans who we call the cheetah generation, who have determined that in their lifetime, they want to own Africa, they want the resources of Africa to benefit Africa and Africans first and foremost, and they want to also play on the global stage by creating world-class blue-chip companies, and for Africa not just to be seen for her animals and for also the exploitation of her resources, but to be seen to create products. Africa Rising wants to empower, educate, and open up rural Africa, where more than 75% of Africans live, so that they can get jobs, livelihoods, and be educated, right? And they also want to champion and are championing entrepreneurship, they are also championing and working towards an AIDS-free generation in Africa, which Ndaba is actually a UN AIDS ambassador. But through his work with Africa Rising, they've been able to lessen the stigma associated with HIV AIDS. They operate as a non-profit, which is really a social uh, entrepreneurship venture. And one of the signature programs that we are creating now, because we saw the need, was creating the 100 Mandelas because we saw that Africa's greatest need is to create excellent, high-caliber 
leaders who will have more than a 10, 50, 100 year vision for Africa and not just want to amass wealth for themselves once they get into these positions of power and prestige. So that's really at the heart of Africa Rising to create a new cadre of leaders who are Mandela-like, who will propel the vision of a united, prosperous, and peaceful Africa. In concert with this idea of bringing the ideals of Mandela forward, Ndaba wrote a book called Going to the Mountain, Life Lessons from My Grandfather, Nelson Mandela. Later, he read a passage from the book referencing some of his grandfather's teachings. Madiba asked his black countrymen to forgive, but he never asked them to forget. He made sure that the wrongs perpetrated during apartheid became part of our written and recorded history. Even those wrongs committed by people who were dear to him, the very people who were fighting for his freedom. Speaking only for myself, there's no ways in hell I would be able to come out of prison after almost three decades and tell my family to throw their guns in the ocean. There are no words for that in the lexicon of ordinary people. We needed Madiba to plow that path for us to follow. And he did that at a great personal cost. His focus firmly fixed on the greater good. For me, Madiba said, nonviolence was not a moral principle, but a strategy. The old saying goes, listen to the direction of the wind. The old man sat in prison all those years, and he listened. If you're a leader, and when you're leading, the first thing you need to, to listen to everybody concerned, to the best of your ability. The second thing, you need to be very observant. And the third thing, you need to understand everybody's interests. Everybody has an interest. And once you've done that, and you have knowledge, and you have a good judgment, you can arrive at a solution of how to tackle the conflict. So we just want to play our part. Like Mandela finished his uh, job of uh, politically liberating South Africa, we want to do our job for connecting Africa with technology, first and foremost, and secondly, uh, creating a visa-free Africa, and then thirdly, making sure we create strong families, that parents have jobs and can earn their livelihoods so that they can give examples to their children and so that they, the children can learn what discipline is all about, what routine is all about, and then create this Africa that we desire. The way to make the world better is for me to be useful in it, is for me to avail my time to people and for me to leave them better than I found them. If I offer them the best that I have, I could help them become slightly better than I found them. And that if I could be able to coach, mentor, support one individual, they could then create impact within themselves and then within their families and within their communities. So that's what drives me on a daily basis. So now what I have to do is actually go back to the gym. Mm. I have to go back to the gym to slowly but surely say, Daba, whether it's a weekend, whether it's after nine to five, brother, you have to start slowly but surely getting back into the mold of things to making sure that your mind is tuned in. Mm. So even when you are out at your friend's birthday, mm. your consciousness 
you can still speak true to your consciousness, even when you're celebrating your friend's birthday. Mm. You understand? Mm. And if your friend doesn't want to hear it, so be it. So be it. But we need to take our mind back to the gym. The whole metaphor, and I know that you did that with your grandfather. He was a very disciplined human being, mm. and he had confinement to hone that. So I think that is, is a takeaway message for us, that we all have to live by what we believe. And don't we know that if we, quote unquote, go to the gym, the literal gym, exercise ourselves, we actually feel better, we are clearer, we are happier, we get along with our respectives, mm. and we have more energy and, and love. Mm. Mm. And we have the and we have the, the sustenance for the long for the long haul, not just for ourselves, but also for for the kind of leg, the legacy of the baton that we are passing on. You can blow the candle, but you can't blow the fire. Once the flames begin to catch, the winds will blow them high. You've been listening to conversations with Ndaba Mandela, Andrew Nilani, and Teddy Waria presenters at the United World College USA Conference on Migration and Belonging. This program is made possible by the Bardos Institute at United World College USA. I'm Judy Goldberg, independent producer for Viewpoint Productions, leaving you with the United World College USA African Chorus, singing Peter Gabriel's tribute to anti-apartheid martyr Vico. They're in performance at the rededication of the Nelson Mandela Garden on a very windy and most inspiring day. You can hear Judy Goldberg's full piece featuring Nadaba Mandela and her other guests by visiting our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can hear our earlier segment there, too, about the Netflix film Tricky Dick and the Man in Black. You can see photos, link to other resources, too. It's where you can hear every program in our series dating back to 2002, all at peacetalksradio.com. It's also where you can go to click on a donate button and help keep our nonprofit project going with your support as other folks have, like George and Sherry Coynes, Betsy Christensen, who donated to honor her late parents, John and Audrey. We also have support from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Tides Fund and KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Nola Daves Moses is the executive director of our nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.